0: hey vanessa
1: hello adam how are you doing
0: today? um uh, will it be dishonest to say good
1: yes but you can say it i
0: mean i'm okay i'm fine um de- depression is part of my uh style today sorry welcome to uncertain things
1: welcome to uncertain things the n- not so depressing podcast maybe from somewhat depressed people
0: <laughs> the somewhat is only because we we are averaging the depression between the two of us <laughs> right, right you you, you bring merriment to the podcast i bring binge drinking
1: well well Yes, I guess. Suppose if we want to be stereotypical about it, sure.
0: So today we have Justin Davidson, who is—I um, believe you have a poster of him in your room uh, mm-hmm. w- without a shirt.
1: <laughs> you did, you did this in the interview too, where like you made a creepy comment about how much I like him, and it really disconcerted <laughs> me. I was like, "This this guy's actually gonna think that I'm like worshiping him at a little altar or something."
0: I mean, <laughs> I, I I can only be honest, Vanessa.
1: No, I. I very much like the writing of Justin Davidson. I do not have an altar to him in my room yet, but you know that the the year is young. Um, but no, I discovered so so I I think as some people on the podcast probably have picked up. I am usually an urbanist and architecture kind of writer. That's my professional background, um, and so I've been following Justin Davidson since like started like back back when I was a, a wee, a wee fresh journalism grad carving my way, well, grad, journalism uh, professional carving my way out through the, through the world. Um, and so I, I really liked what he wrote about. I really liked the way he approached things. And he's kind of one of the few architecture critics that I've actually stuck with over the years and that I still read and that I still turn to now because he is, he hits on all the important interesting subject matters and like the whole reason why i fell in love with architecture criticism in the first place was not necessarily because of the pretty buildings all the buildings are very pretty um some of them some of them and some of them are really atrocious and it's fun to like rake on a a terrible building um but the ways that buildings and the ways that cities develop how much that has to say about you know, where we are as a society. Who has power in that moment? Who has the money? How is it playing out? Who has a say in what gets built? Who does it serve? Um, And Justin Davidson is one of those critics who thinks about all of those questions when he writes about a new building. And it's not just about, you know, is there a portico or something like that or a cantilever, um, which is, you know, architecture jargon for the architecture folks. Um, So I really, really I appreciate how how nuanced he is in his approach, and he talks about that in the interview about how interconnected everything is. Um, and actually, there's that fun fun anecdote of Dom. Did did I tell you how I found Justin Davidson's email to reach out to him for uncertain things? Uh, no, I I dug through my old email inbox and i found an email i think from like 2012 or something (laughs) that was justin davidson writing out to me because i'm i'm i accidentally called him the new yorker magazine critic (laughs) in one of my articles instead of the new york magazine critic and even though like i should have been mortified and i was a little bit i was mostly just like giddy giddy that justin davidson had read my article justin
0: davidson knows my name
1: <laughs> he read it and he was so nice in the email so i was like oh my god i'm so sorry mr davidson like i will fix that like immediately um and he was like oh no it's like no big no big deal it, it happens and i you know appreciated that you were writing about uh, the topic the subject matter was suburbia i had written an article about suburbia and it was like it's a bear of a subject glad you tackled it and i was like "Ah." Oh, This is like the best day of my young professional (laughs) life. Uh, Which which actually
0: connects to my first observation, which is you described yourself as a journalism professional because calling yourself a journalist feels too uncomfortable (laughs) on your tongue. (laughs) My journalism adjacent employee. Well,
1: as as, you know, made evident by my my rookie fuck up, um, I did. I did came up in a quote unquote journalistic (laughs) outlet that didn't really have any real journalists there so there were there was no fact checking there was no like real editing and so i had to learn everything myself which was both good and really crappy from time to time i made stupid mistakes Uh,
0: yeah i think there's something charming about being raised by the uh the internet (laughs) i mean there's a lot to learn from from the 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 lowest slums of, (laughs) of journalism because when you if you're lucky and climb up to to better paying positions you discover huh it's not that different here. We're not <laughs> that different, you and I. We're all skeezy. I think that's just worth uh, pointing out how, what an, a, a weirdly interesting topic urbanism mm. is and, and, and how I've, we may or may not have mentioned it in previous podcasts, but this is one of the first things we, we really connected on. I don't know if that's wrong, right but one of the things that we really connected like on, like you
1: and I connected on.
0: You friends, and I, yeah. sorry, yes, yes, I, I have no relationship with uh, Justin. <laughs> I did not misquote his uh, outlet, which is Curbed. It's
1: it's New York Magazine, which that now has gotten like subsumed into Curbed. So
0: yeah, there is so much about cities that that gets taken for granted. Oddly enough, despite all my rants about uh, the the failures of media and the the failures of politics and the failures of blah 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 blah, I I think probably cities are the topic that gets me most impassioned and most ranty. And I think anybody who knows me for over maybe a week will have been subjected to one of my my long sempiternal diatribes about. The awful state of street-level retail in New York, for instance, or how big American cities are failing to live up to the promise and potential of a city. Mm -hmm. So I think just thinking of cities in terms of networks of power, of the environment that nourishes the spirit of the people who live there, not just in terms of employment opportunities, which is something that, that does get discussed a lot, but also is something that gives people the psychological tools to go out and thrive, and I, I really believe in cities as having that power, if they manage to find this balance of fostering communities on one hand, but also giving them a variety and diversity mm-hmm. to interact, and even a degree of anonymity, which is, is also right. a key Jane Jacobs concept that plays into this, to go out and have the, the strength to build themselves, but also have the comfort to fall back and 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 hide in their little caves and 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 recoup this is' a, it's an interesting dance that a city a successful city is able to offer, and I think less and less right are we able to find this at least in in the u s San Francisco and New York are in trouble as 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 many mm-hmm. know, and thinking about these troubles uh, is is fascinating to me oddly enough, this has been relegated my my topic of interest has been relegated to the bottom of the show well
1: (laughs) well it's also my topic of interest and like so there was we could have invited justin davidson to the show like a million times because we're just generally interested about this topic and he's always going to have an interesting point of view because he's written about every single aspect of city life from the city sidewalk to the you know transit system to a to a small building to the streetery whatever it is but I was kind of waiting for like a good excuse to like pitch him that email to come on. And so, I mean, when I read his article, uh, How Will We Remember This?, which was all about this question of how will we memorialize COVID? I thought, OK, that is a good excuse to get him on the podcast because that is a very timely an interesting project that he worked on. So that ended up being, yeah, the bulk of our conversation ended up being around memorialization, which, to be fair, is also a topic that both you and I find really, really fascinating that we've also bonded over and talked yeah, about. And at yeah, yeah, it's before. actually
0: a super interesting topic. We, funnily enough, because conversations about what's a legitimate monument was. A very topical conversation like two years ago. And I remember we did have a lot of household right. debates about that, powered by nationwide attempts to take down Confederate monuments.
1: Right. That was even before even before all like the the unrest this summer and people like pulling down um, statues like, yeah, we had a we had like a whole debate about it at our house about like what should we be doing with monuments that are like fraught in this way.
0: And it's it's a really interesting conversation because it it not only begs the question of what a monument is supposed to be but also how, what's the place of a monument in in a city in the in the tapestry of of a city. So while we didn't speak to Justin about Confederate monuments, there's been plenty of verbiage spent over the past 3 years about that. We do go into the cultural thinking behind monuments as a kind of bridge that connects history with the present and sends it into the future. How do you choose them? What stories are you trying to tell with them? How to tell them? And what the costs of choosing one story over another? For, we talk about the 9-11 monument, for instance, and we talk about the um, the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. And, and each of them was an, a decision that came... With a cost, not an obvious cost, and not just obviously you know the price tag, but a cultural debt that was not necessarily intended, and then had to be reckoned with. You know, our podcast aims to be about culture and society, not just in the the daily churn of politics, but also evaluating the world that we're emerging out of and trying to assess what world we're marching into. And architecture, broadly and monuments specifically, but architecture in a more invisible way, captures this transition. Architecture surrounds us. Design surrounds us. They inform our most immediate cultural impressions. It's, it's, It's the first salvo into a dialogue with society because it's literally where we wake up and what we see when we look out of the window and how the space is allocated and what aesthetic Preferences are are expressed. What memories and ideas are conveyed by those streets as you mm. traverse them matters, and it's, this becomes right. and this goes to my, my my first point about why I care so much about cities. It just becomes part of your psyche. It becomes part of who you are as an individual in this trash laden biome.
1: It's it's also interesting coming on the heels of our previous conversation because we spent a fair amount of time in that conversation with Misha talking about trauma about you know. How how do we individually process trauma versus like at a more societal level? And at a societal level, we kind of came up fairly empty in that conversation. We didn't have (laughs) too much to offer to it. And and this conversation in a way is kind of a follow up to that, because like one one way in which a society can respond to some sort of collective trauma is. By building a building or a monument or not building a building and then like what that's also kind of a reflective of where the collective psyche is at right so I think that's that's kind of also an interesting kind of uh, continuation of that conversation as well.
0: I will add one thing that I might end up cutting because it might be totally irrelevant, but just you you made me think about the idea of what becomes monument worthy, I think is an interesting question. We we somewhat touched that, but I would like to explore it further. And I wonder if we could find a guest to help us get there.
1: Cough, cough. Maya Lin. Cough, cough. Maya Lin, if you're listening. listening answer by my emails
0: so i didn't bring up israel in the in in this interview Shocking. so i have to do it now
1: once per episode it my obligatory
0: there's been a tragic collapse of some facility where hundreds uh, what i'm saying probably thousands of ultra orthodox israelis were attending some pagan ceremony or other and the the thing collapsed it was overcrowded, it was the fault of the, the government for basically allowing this to happen, because aside for corona violations of having you know thousands of people stuffed together into that facility, it, it was just architecturally dangerous. So it was a preventable tragedy that was actually to some extent encouraged, and dozens of people perished. The day after it happened, or a few days after it happened, the government in Israel, to the extent there is one, declared it a national tragedy. And, and this raises a real question about what constitutes a national tragedy. And that's what's in the back of my mind right now, because in this particular case, on the individual level, of course, this is horrific, but a national tragedy, people have died in similar numbers for other construction-related incidents in Israeli history because of you know corrupt officials giving permits to to terrible constructions that that have ended up collapsing on civilians. So to have this particular event, preventable event, an event that the government should have been involved in stopping in the first place, and yet not only allowed, but promoted you know, one one um, member of the Israeli Parliament said that they before the event that they are actually going to uh, support buses going all through the night to to make sure that that everybody who wants to go to this little uh, ritual is <laughs> has a way of getting there from all across the country. And Now, to ha- the same pseudo government and s- saying that this is something that we as a nation need to mourn. Is this is this this is something that happened to us? As a nation and not something that happened to, to people individually because of bad governance is confounding to me. And it also opens up a, a sore point in Israel of which populations get to have their tragedies memorialized. Whose pain in the Israeli public is deserving of national grief Is it the Israeli Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem as second-rate citizens? Is it the secular communities who generally have their rights trampled when it comes to to religious law and the religiousification of Israel? Or is it this story of droves of, of Orthodox being shoved into a collapsing facility? I don't know. This is just to show in a way more parochial way than necessary, for which I apologize, that Justin's point about the politics of monuments is very much alive.
1: That's why he talks a lot about you shouldn't memorialize too soon because mm. its emotions are high and politics are intense. <laughs> yeah I, and f, and for COVID, I think it's a big old question mark in my mind. I don't know if, if when would be the right moment and how and where and uh, who. And where, yeah, yeah, it's it's a complicated one.
0: Uh, the the one uh, prerequisite apology this time would be Justin's dog. I think was doing a lot of shuffling at the beginning of the of the episode, so I hope this doesn't distract too much from his mellifluous voice. And with that,
1: Justin. Davis.
0: Um. So I'll just uh, preface by saying that Vanessa is the resident urbanist and architecture. Uh the dilettante, and I am just a dilettante. So I, my questions may be incredibly dumb. So feel free to call me out on them.
2: Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Urbanism is for everybody. We all live in cities. So. Um, and I'm just gonna alert you that this is the hour of the day where my dog gets really hyper. And I've hopefully I've sort of quieted him down. But if you can hear him like rustling around, just let me know.
1: Yeah, take extraordinary hey, well, measures. Cities are for dogs too, and so are podcasts. So that's fine. <laughs>
0: We've had babies in our shows. We've had a lot, yeah. a lot of creatures that needed muting. So we're all, yeah. we're prepared. <laughs> I wish I could just
2: mute him, but.
0: <laughs> well, Justin, thank you for joining us. Great
2: to be here.
1: So, for those of our listeners who may not be as familiar with your work as I am, would you mind just giving a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do?
2: Sure. I mean, I know we're talking mostly about urbanism and architecture. I'm actually the classical music and architecture critic at New York Magazine. Uh, So this past year has been heavy on cities and urbanism, not so heavy on classical music since the entire concert world ground to a halt, and I'm not really covering streaming much. So I have a weekly column as part of Curbed, which New York Magazine recently absorbed um, and is now a vertical on our website. And then some of that material winds up in a print magazine. So for the first time as of this fall, I now have colleagues in, on the urbanism beat, which is great. Um, but I am, I am the critic. I've continued to do what I do and try to range pretty widely over. Architecture, public space issues, uh, you know, and that often spills over into politics and economics and you name it. It's the nature of cities. Everything's intertwined.
1: Exactly. And that that actually kind of leads me to my first question, because I think part of what attracted me to writing about architecture and urbanism in the first place was that it was a, a way, a kind of a lens through which you can see the world. And then you actually get to talk about so many different topics through just talking about, be it public space or a building or whatever it might be. And as I was kind of getting more into the, to the field, well, I kind of it, to my mind I kind of seemed saw two divergent paths or two divergent approaches towards architecture criticism. One more kind of traditional and looking at it from the more aesthetic um angle I would say, architecture kind of as as arch as a subset of art criticism. And then as I kind of got more into it, I think it, the field kind of shifted and changed and or maybe reverted would be the better word towards a kind of more urbanistic grounding. Um, and that for me was much more appealing of a, f- a form of architecture criticism. I'm curious if you similarly saw that bifurcation and or if you agree that it is a bifurcation at all. And if it is, where do you find
2: yourself in that spectrum?
0: And And I will add the idiot's question. <laughs> if you do agree with the bifurcation, if you could explain exactly what you see it as.
2: So I certainly got into architecture criticism. Uh, because I liked beautiful buildings and I like being in them. I like what they, what they do to me. I, th- it seemed like a, in a, a funny way, a natural segue from writing about music, which is as an artistic experience, but I'm also a city boy and, um, growing up, you know, I always saw buildings as touching each other and touching the people around them. So I would say that I came at it from both directions at once. I do think there was a shift. And I think that the shift has been pretty profound. I think that if you look at some of the architecture criticism from the 1990s, early 2000s, it would feel out of place today. But if you go back to, say, the work of Ada Louise Huxtable or Michael Sorkin, these are people who are looking at the ways buildings interact with their environment, with cities, the, the political freight that they carry, the social implications that they have, the sense that architecture means something and isn't, isn't just a thing, a set of objects on a table. These days, I think that those connections are unavoidable. Being an architecture critic means being able to shift scales to see sort of a, a little architectural detail that pleases you or, or doesn't and sort of look at it. You know, sort of at the scale of the palm of your hand, and then be able to sort of gradually move out, kind of like a a drone moving farther and farther away, and be able to see how those things relate. I think of any intervention as implying a set of concentric circles of responsibility, right? So if you do something in the city at any scale, right, whether it's like designing a new garbage can for the corner or fixing up a doorway, or inserting a building between two other buildings, you have a responsibility as an architect to your client, to the people who are going to be using that building on the inside, who are, who are paying for it, essentially, in one way or another, directly or indirectly. But you also have a responsibility to all the people who are going to be passing by it, who are going to be somehow interacting with it, to the maybe the stores or your neighbor's on either side, to the people across the street, to the whole block, to the neighborhood, to the city, to the skyline, to the region, and so on. Like, And each of those things is different. They're all interrelated. But sometimes there will be, you will find a design, especially for a very large building, that has a dramatic impact on on different scales. You'll find some of those things conflicting. And I think part of what being an architecture critic is In New York is to find those junctures and say, well, this building may work on this scale, but not on this other scale. And what it means to me is that the aesthetic aspect is not just a frill. The aesthetic aspect is not just an overlay on whatever the function is, but it's really knitted in tightly with that set of relationships, with how it works, who it works for, why it works, and you know, what the what the effect is. Interesting
0: hearing you speak. For my field of, of interest and passion is is history, and I remember the moment in studying it that the different dimensions of analysis suddenly clicked for me, and I, I was suddenly like able to see things as like a you know as a polygonal shape and understanding. Okay, this is how I see this level of interpretation, but at the same time, I see the other. Do you remember some of the early and like an early example for you when the ability to see the detail in the palm of your hand as, as you said but also how a piece interfaces with a bigger reality of a city suddenly clicked for you
2: I'll tell you a couple things. One is that coming from from music, that relationship that sort of fractal relationship between the tiny scale and the largest scale is something that people talk about in music all the time So musical analysis actually really prepared me well for that idea you know when you have a two note little motive, or a particular rhythmic cell that may only last less than a second, you start to understand how that is related to the scale of the measure, or the phrase, or the episode, or the movement, or the work as a whole, or even a, a, like a an evening long, you know, opera, and how those things recur and vary and change. So that idea itself, and as a composer, I actually worked with that. You know, I had to create that. And so that idea of those relationships, in a kind of abstract way, was very natural to me. But also, I really came to, not to architecture, but to writing about it as a journalistic critic in the period following the um, 9-11 attacks. And so my immersion, (laughs) who was really being thrown into the deep end, was all of the discussions around what should replace the World Trade Center. And they were extremely complex. I was not entirely equipped to deal with them. I mean, I did as best I could, but I I recognized certainly... I recognized them, and it's clear in retrospect, that it was a lot to embrace. And yet, at the same time, there was something so unprecedented about that moment, because it was an interaction between entrenched real estate interests namely Larry Silverstein and the whole development world, public agencies, and so a political process, namely the governor, Pataki, and the Port Authority, the sort of urbanist world of, you know, uh, urban planning, um, but also just the general public. This was something that had to be sold in some way to everybody, and everybody was involved in a way that I don't think, you know, New York had really ever experienced Before to that extent, it was a very exciting thing, but it really did help me understand quickly that you can't judge a proposal based on uh, the lines or the drawings. You really have to understand what it's doing there. That was clear from the get go,
1: right? And each line was actually a representation of potentially multiple compromises or discussions or trade offs between so many different stakeholders. And like unpacking that, those decisions and what is that then results in the built form is is kind of partly your job but also to say when that compromise has gone too far and has actually sacrificed the form itself potentially.
2: Right, well one of the one of the early things that journalists had to do and and that included journalists who were not trained in architecture at all or were really not covering architecture or were covering the politics or the even the gossip aspects of the conflicts between one architect and another or different politicians. Uh, One of the things that everybody had to deal with was what the relationship was between an idea or a drawing or a master plan and what was actually going to come out the other end. On that scale, you know, there weren't really too many people who could understand it quickly, you know, at all those levels. And those people certainly, you know, were, again, somebody like Ida Louise Huxtable, obviously. And then there were professionals, you know, who who could understand that. But I just remember one of the issues early on that the the architect, David Childs, who was then uh, a leading architect at Skidmore Owens in Maryland, the initial designer of uh, what became One World Trade Center. one of the very early things he was talking about was reopening Greenwich Street and making that a through street. As soon as that was like one of his very first considerations. And of course, when you're looking at a bunch of drawings, like that's not what you're thinking about that's not what most people were thinking about but as soon as that came up that made sense to me because i saw like right this is about three dimensions and it's about the street plane as well as the verticality of the uh, of the towers themselves and their interaction it's like it's really important to understand when you're looking at a tower and how what the little thingy looks like at the top of it what's happening a thousand or 1500 feet below where I'm actually walking and that again was something that made a lot of sense to me because my experience of city was very much as a walker and biker and and observer from from street level
1: that makes that makes a lot of sense to me and i think that is kind of what differentiates a a good good critic from a bad one to be able to see at those two levels, understand how it's going to impact everyday people. But I am curious, since we're on this topic, and I know part of the reason why we invite you on the show is to talk about this topic of memorialization. And so we're going to get there in a minute, we're gonna talk about your your new piece that came out. Um, How will we remember this about how do we memorialize COVID? But before we get there, let's let's stay back here where you kind of started You said you kind of got your your significant start in in your writing at this moment in time. So how are you thinking about how do how do we memorialize nine eleven? Like what were the things that you thought were gonna need to be important, not just in the level of building, but in that kind of three-dimensional experience on the on the cityscape on the street?
2: Well, one of the things that struck me from the beginning was the scale of the destruction. And we lived with the city's with those scars for a long time. I mean, it's a little bit hard to telescopes in the memory, but, you know, it was a year where it smelled bad, you know, where it was still smoking, where like there were piles of rubble. And, you know, the first job was to just create a hole to take all that stuff away. What struck me also was that that area was simultaneously the newest and the oldest part of the city because it was really where the city began. But, um, and so there was this kind of like undergirding or surrounding of almost medieval kind of, uh, street layouts, very, very, very tight and narrow, um, where Manhattan had first developed, you know, back to new Amsterdam days, but also half of the world trade center was sitting on landfill that was created for battery park city, um, you know, in the process of, of, of creating battery park city. So Manhattan had actually expanded from that old area. So that idea that we were dealing both with the newest and the oldest part of the city, that the scale of destruction was unimaginable, and that so were the ambitions to restore it. um, Those were very powerful. And of course, the emotions were powerful. And the emotional reaction became a driving urbanistic force. In the very first days after 9-11, the families of the victims, they, they had a say uh, in what happened afterwards. And in particular, there were a couple of comments early on that called the, the place where the towers had risen uh, sacred ground. That was a very important phrase. And it was one that um, the governor invoked, again, like within days or weeks after, afterwards. And already the, the political and, and development machine was talking about reconstruction. And that fact that that sort of given that you weren't going to treat the footprints of the towers as sacred ground and therefore they were going to already define the dimensions and the scope of the memorial because what it meant was nothing could be built on those footprints you could not simply have the city grow over and heal in that place that was not going to happen
1: rightly wrongly what were you, what was your take on that
2: i had a problem with that. I, I thought that that was premature. And it wasn't a considered decision. It was an emotional one. It predetermined aspects of, of the memorial, which, which then had to be reconciled with our understanding of what had actually happened. So, here we were still in shock, still mystified, really. There were still, you know, there were still anthrax envelopes showing up in people's offices still caught up in the, the kind of confusion. And I felt that was backwards. I felt that we needed to understand what it was that was being memorialized. We needed a narrative. We needed a sense of an ending. And then we, we could approach that issue because otherwise we were choking off any possible vitality in an area that really needed reimagining. I felt that that was a process. That was one part of the process that went awry really right from the beginning and you know it really did determine what happened i mean it really did determine how the city uh, grew grew from there you know you can see the trace of those decisions those early decisions and assumptions in, in what we're looking at there
0: you mean there in in lower manhattan or?
2: yeah i mean at the at, at what is now you know sort of the rebuilt world trade center i mean that memorial plaza the the, the voids those were all designed as a consequence of that, the 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 emptiness that's there. If you were starting from scratch now and you were sort of evaluating, okay, what what does that event mean in our sort of national consciousness? I don't know. Would we have a memorial that's so scaled, so much bigger than say the Vietnam memorial? And I mean, you know, it's not a contest of like who gets the bigger memorial, but would we base all of those urban and financial and political decisions on that? Maybe we would, but I was unsure that the result was going to be what we, what we really wanted or that the city was going to, we were going to get the best possible urban result um, as a consequence of that.
0: Can you point to something specific that you think that could have been a missed opportunity in that regard?
2: By the time of 9-11, the financial district had already begun its transition to a residential district. So one of the proposals that everybody thought was ridiculous at the time, and remember the early proposals were for a master plan, not for a design. I think this was part of the confusion from the beginning. One of the proposals was for housing, and that was pretty much excluded from the the get-go. Now, if you look back, you might've decided that this was a great opportunity to build housing in a neighborhood that was going to need it alongside uh, the office buildings, that it was not clear the city was going to need. Then you might have said, okay, what we really should do here is a mixed use neighborhood that is 24 hour neighborhood that's going to be housing, work, cultural life, all of the things that, that make a part of the city successful so that we're going to de-segment the city. We're not going to create a commuting magnet for people to come at rush hour from all over the city where, um, you know, where that, where the, the transportation nodes are. We're also going to kind of dilute that by creating, by spreading the activity of the city over a longer part of the day. We're going to create housing. But when you do that, you also will tend to create ground floor retail, streets a sense of a neighborhood. So maybe instead of a huge, big plaza that really doesn't serve a function as a park or as really open space, it has a sense sort of sacramental quality. It has since become basically a magnet for tourists Did until, you know, there were no more tourists. You know, maybe what you create is a denser fabric of the city and a more sort of mixed use kind of place in which Memorial has a place, but we also dedicate some of that space to this kind of denser, urban fabric, which brings us back closer to the way the city began. Maybe we sort of go back to the idea of the old city starting there and take inspiration from that. So there are a lot of different ways that you could go. But, you know, once you say, okay, those big 200 foot by 200 foot uh, holes are going to stay holes. We're going to do this big plaza around it. We're going to have a circle of office towers around that. Well, you know, that's your plan.
1: And then you've essentially frozen it in, in place for some exactly. time. Exactly, yeah.
2: exactly.
1: I, wa- I want to get back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, when, th- when these conversations were being had and you were thinking, you know, we need, we need a narrative, we need a story. And, and this really, I think, intersects with your question of, like, the timing of making a memorial, because with 9-11, as you said, it was it was relatively soon after, and so the emotions were high, and it was hard to know what the story was at that moment, except for one of grieving. Um, and I think that that brings us a little bit to, to your the article that you wrote recently about, you know, the timing in which you choose to make a memorial actually has all the impact in the world on the memorial that you get, because it's how you're configuring that traumatic event of the past in your current present. Um, I'm, I'm, I was wondering if you could like speak a bit more to that about that relationship between that, uh, uh, the present and how we look back on the past.
2: Sure. So let me tell you a little bit about this project that we did. Cause, um, it was, it was unusual and the way we got there was unusual too. And in the course of, of putting it together. I talked to Michael Arad, who was the designer of the World Trade Center Memorial. He said, of course, many people had come to him and to started talking to him about designing a memorial for the, the people who had died of, of COVID. And he said he thought it was way too soon for that. And he said in an email to me, you know, I think we should wait until people stop dying of COVID before we start thinking about how to memorialize them. And it was sort of the way we were thinking from the get-go. Here we were hitting a one-year anniversary of basically when New York went into lockdown mode and we were looking back. We're obviously clearly still, you know, in the middle of this experience. We hope, we think we're sort of emerging out of it slowly. We don't really know, you know, what the the near future is going to be. We also don't know what the implications are of this experience that we just went through on so many different levels. I mean, this year has been so potentially transformative. You know, the psychological impact on um, people who have been isolated or on kids, the educational impact on kids, uh, the economic impact on one segment of, you know, the economy after another. There are so many things about, about it that are imponderable. And one of the things that struck me was even just on a public health or disease using just that as a lens and you exclude everything else. Will we look back on this as a catastrophic failure or conversely, is it going to be the story of something terrible that happened, but which triggered a whole new age in scientific research about infectious disease and respiratory disease and vaccinations and inoculations that is going to bring us into a whole new era of science? How can you memorialize something that is so multivalent, so huge in its scope, so private in its effects, so, you know, so various in its kinds of, of grief? Where do you begin? What is it you're memorializing? So when we were talking about how to mark this anniversary as, a, as the staff of Curbed, we talked about this. We were batting this back and forth and somebody said, well, it would be great if we could get a range of experiences of the last year, somehow into the story and into the project. And at the same time, it would be great if we could get a bunch of different people, maybe five or six designers to suggest some ways of memorializing. And we refine that into the idea of let's take a group of New Yorkers from different ages, different walks of life, and so on, different parts of the city. Let's interview them and let's make them the clients for the designers here's an interview that we conducted and transcribed. Can you do something in response to that? And we figured we had to cast our net pretty broadly. We had very little time. We were having this meeting less than a month before we knew we were going to publish, maybe three weeks. We cast our net pretty wide and wound up with more than 15 people, uh, designers who agreed to participate because everybody loved the idea. And we specifically asked them to design temporary installations. So we weren't asking them to think, you know, long-term, Although they could, if they wanted to, we didn't give them locations. We didn't give them, you know, maximum budgets. We just asked basically uh, that their ideas be at least theoretically buildable. So that there wasn't some kind of like fantasy experimental thing. We didn't want sort of like a whole new city being tethered by ropes flying over Manhattan. We wanted something that could be built. We wanted something temporary and we wanted something that would be a response to the prompt that they were getting. And from there, then I wrote an essay on how we will remember this, what it actually means, and what the possibilities are. So, one of the questions I had, I sort of was thinking about, is to what extent is, do we incorporate the idea of shame? You know, of of the sense that like grief is also exacerbated by a sense that this was a challenge we did not live up to. And in fact, in many ways, exacerbated. And when I say we, you know, we as many different groups, right? There's no royal we, but the fact that it exacerbated divisions in society so that the reactions to the, society, to the science that we were getting was varied. Behaviors were very varied. It became instantly politicized. You know, I think we have to assume that we're going to look back on this and think, you know, oh, what were we thinking? We're going to have to revise a lot of those things Um, and we're going to have to like get some distance from the from the politics of it to understand really what the nuance was. So, you know, this question of shame, that's a real 20th century thing. Right. There were no memorials to shame before, you know, primarily the the Holocaust. And so uh, then, you know, we start to get other ones to some extent. uh, There's there's an aspect of shame in the Vietnam and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial.
1: Yeah. Shall we? Would you mind walking? I think and this is quite an interesting part of your piece. And I do want to go back to the the installation. So I think that is quite fascinating. But you do spend a beat in your in your essay going through the ways that we've approached memorialization and how they've changed over time. So would you mind just spending a little bit of time explaining kind of what the traditional way was and how I assume it changed around the Vietnam War Memorial and, and where we are kind of today in that in that concept of how to how and why we memorialize?
2: Well you know, traditionally memorials were to um, to heroes, to great events to they 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 commemorated that is based on the kind of you know goes back to classical um, to a classical era. but I think the first real watershed in that was World War one. World War one in Europe was so calamitous and collective and experienced in so many different parts of that world that what you get is a series of relatively small memorials in every little town with just the names, maybe a little obelisk or something, but really the the main heart of it is just the names of the people who died. It's not really questioning, it's who, who died in that place or who died from that place. And of course, it's always poignant to look at those because you see how many people shared the same last name and you see entire families devastated. And if you spend a little time with that, you just imagine, you know, here you are in a little French town of 500 people and there are 40 or 60 names on this little plaque and only a handful of surnames. And you just try to imagine what that did to the social fabric of that town. World War II was a completely different Story because it was almost impossible to memorialize as a military event without simultaneously recognizing the atrociousness of the Holocaust. Which is one of the things that I, incidentally, you know, to digress for a moment, found so uh, difficult to swallow about the World War II memorial that was completed quite recently on the mall in Washington. And it was really just a memorial to America's military involvement and victory in World War II. Uh, and that was really sort of hearkening back to this idea of, you know, kind of the Marshall Memorial.
1: That's the one that has all the, like, it's like semicircular and each state gets a column and there's like wreaths. And it kind of looks kind of classical-esque, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: Fascistic yeah. even.
1: Yeah, a little bit,
2: yeah. World War II made it impossible to just deal with as a, as a martial event. Um, without also dealing with the Holocaust and that was especially true of course in Germany where you had successive generations of artists who were trying to reckon with that memory and especially reckon with both the need to sustain that memory and also the tendency to obliterate it so uh, you know it was something that basically in the you know, up through the '60s was really hardly talked about, and then you get a generation of artists and young Germans in the '60s who, along with all the other upheavals that were happening then, said, "We really need a better understanding of what our parents did in the in the Holocaust," and that continues really through another generation, where it's an, a, a new generation of artists saying, "We need a better understanding of what our grandparents did," and and how do we keep that memory alive? How do we deal with what it means. You get a bunch of different approaches, but one of the things that I mentioned in the story that I found interesting was this idea that in the 1980s, you start to get a generation of artists who are dealing both with the, the obligation to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive, um, but also at the same time, the recognition that building a memorial to it simply isn't enough because it's just too easy to create a kind of big stone thing that's supposed to remind us of what it's there to commemorate, but actually quickly becomes something, just a piece of furniture, urban furniture, you just ignore, you don't remember what it means anymore after a while. And it's just there and, you know, it's got some kind of elaborate name. Nobody knows what the name of it is. It's just becomes a part of the, part of the city. And so they were very suspicious of the idea of in a way, offloading the task of memory to a big permanent structure. They felt that memory was something that needed to be cultivated, that the meaning needed to continue to be debated. And so how do you translate that idea into, you know, an object? One of the, um, there was a couple by the name of Geertz who in the, um, town of Harburg, uh, in Germany, erected a, a, a slab, which was covered in, in lead that could be gradually lowered into the ground. And what they did was they, it was blank. And it was a memorial to the victims of fascism. But what they did was they encouraged people to write on it. And they thought in in a sort of pretty German way that there was gonna be just these lines of names, victims of, of fascism, and people were gonna come in and sort of inscribe their name. Of course, what happened was it got covered with all kinds of graffiti. And it took them a little while to to sort of, you know, recalibrate and think, well, okay. The whole point was that it was going to be a way for people to express something. You can't really control what it is they're going to express. Some of it is going to be disrespectful, others not. But the point is that it like becomes a kind of almost like a, a public forum, a written public forum. But it's this tall thing, It's you know, like 20 feet high. So obviously people are only going to be able to write on the lower, you know, on the parts they can reach. So the idea was gradually it lowers so that it's always blank. And the part that's written off kind of just sinks into the earth and people then write on the higher and higher parts until finally it just sinks completely. And all that's left is the plaque that is, that was the top of this stone slab. And the idea was that it was a process and it was a participatory process. People would write on it, people would endow it with meaning, and then it would disappear. And the story of its disappearance became the memorial itself, and it passed back to the people of the town the necessity to do the work of remembering all over again. Um, And I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about what a memorial is. And, you know, there was a kind of spread, I think, of the idea of of a slab of a kind of like gravestone-like thing but that was also kind of an obelisk or just a a sort of like a a monolith like like the one at the beginning of 2001 a space odyssey that then appeared in the utah desert again recently that, that that kind of blank presence would represent a kind of grief tinged with shame Especially something that could be written on. I don't think that could have existed without in between uh, Myelin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which invites a different kind of participation because it's a it's not an object on the landscape. It it is a landscape, but it's an experience that you immerse yourself in. Literally, you go down this ramp. It becomes darker and darker. The wall of names of the people who were lost, the 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 U.S. military personnel who were lost becomes higher and higher as you get deeper into the war um, because they're chronological, but because it's reflective, you see yourself in it and you see all the people who are with you because each of those names represents an individual and, and, uh, and a sort of a, a whole world of, of connections of people who mourn that individual from the beginning, it became a place of pilgrimage for people who, who, had emotional connections to individuals whose names were on that wall. And they brought stuff. They brought flowers. They brought teddy bears. They brought notes. So that dark granite permanent presence also became a series of temporary shrines that was constantly rotating. That, I think, was something Maya did not anticipate, but really became part of the genius of it. And in fact, the Park Service then did exhibitions of some of the stuff that people had brought. So that whole history of bringing stuff to the memorial really became part of the memorial itself. And then you get the um, Justice Memorial. I forget the actual full name of the memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, which was designed by Mass Design Group along with a nonprofit group, which was really a, a memorial to the victims of lynching. It has a location. It's one place, but it recognizes that lynching was something that happened over a wide area in many parts of the South. Uh, specifically in 800 different counties. So they it, part of it was just the labor of documentation, listing all of these events, putting all that history together, tying each of those names to a location, and then creating a superstructure where these metal steel monoliths engraved with names were instead of rising from the earth, were hanging from the ceiling, much like the victim's um, were, were hung from trees. And so you go into and underneath it and those boxes are filled with soil taken from each of those counties, which is of course not something that's visible to the visitor, but it's just something that's known. And that is almost purely a memorial to Shane, right? It's a recognition. It's, a f- it's, it's something that is a beautiful aesthetic experience, but that forces visitors to confront a history, our own complicity, because we are part of the American society that not only produced the horrors that that memorial commemorates, but also benefited from the system that those horrors were there to, to, to police and enforce. And so, you know, all of those things, I think, are things that anybody who designs a COVID memorial, that sense of a memorial being Part of an evolving memory of being many different experiences of being an immersive experience of being a global or at least kind of you know widespread experience with no particular location um, and one that brings with it a, all kinds of ambivalence and conflicting feelings. Right, all of those things are are part of those those previous memorials and the COVID memorial will somehow have to reckon with all those things.
0: I have two questions. So the first is straight, fresh from the Rube wing of this conversation. You, I it always, part of my brain wonders with some of the the more um, modern, abstract uh, aesthetic of the past 30 years of memorials and monuments. If it serves more the Aesthetic predilections and maybe even aesthetic vanities of the designers than it does serve as something for the community to interact with over generations. When, because the obvious example which you also refer to in your article is the uh, the Berlin Holocaust uh, Memorial, right? That those again dark monoliths, which as you mentioned yourself became trendy at some point, uh, to to commemorate. Uh, death and horror, and soon enough, they became uh, a spot for tourists to take selfies and, and 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 have their own, like, vacation pictures taken there, yeah. which which you have to wonder. Like, if you had a very grotesque, gauche version of, like, a, a picture showing a, a Nazi killing a Jewish baby, probably they wouldn't have taken the picture, because the message would have been clear to any idiot coming in, speaking whatever language. So I wonder if if you lose something, because obviously that, you know, the designer thinks about all the aesthetic qualities of what is being symbolized, but the community and with like 10 generations to come and people coming from different cultures and languages might not.
2: Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's you, you, you hit it on the head. I mean, I think that that is crucial. Part of it is how we define community, right? Uh, Different communities, all over the world experienced this rather differently. Uh, So there will almost certainly be a set of local memorials in the same way that there are World War I memorials in different towns, but also 9-11 memorials in in many different places. And and they will cover a range of aesthetic responses. You know, the the key to this when we talk about community is the fact that it was almost universal. Is there going to be this competition for like what, who suffered the most? where, you know, what place suffered the most. And so where a big, you know, memorial should be, um, you know, that would be kind of grotesque, which was why we resorted to temporary memorials. You know, I don't, I don't know that that the the question you ask is a good one. I'm not sure that it can be answered now, um, but it will have to be answered at some point. But I, I think that any memorial has to reckon with the Difference in the way an event is perceived in the short term and the way it's perceived in the medium term, and then by subsequent generations. Part of my whole issue with the nine eleven memorial, although I think the design is really quite, has grown on me, and I and I, and I think it's it's very elegant. Is um, that you know I was never convinced that well at the time I wasn't convinced that say to my son who was at the time four. Um, would have the same kind of investment in that event's importance that I did. And what about his children? And, you know, the next generation, like, some events grow in importance or change in importance, and others kind of just diminish. So that's just a reality. You know, something that's super important to us now that we devote huge amounts of time and, and words and and money to, to, to thinking about it, to memorializing it. Several generations from now may be completely forgotten. Now, a memorial is supposed to guard against that. But when I think about the Holocaust memorial in Berlin, I, I feel like that's actually a useful lesson. It's not just grotesque, it's actually a reminder of the fact that even the Holocaust um, is something that people can and do forget about and needs to be and need to be reminded about, need to be retaught that. Um,
0: so the dialogue itself that was created between the, the the audience and the memorial, however cynical, is valuable in itself.
2: I think so. I think so. And, you know, it's, it, it's not enough to just shame people to say like, you know, how can you be taking a selfie in this sacred place? I think you kind of need to look at that and say, okay, well, you know, that means that the memory of the Holocaust may be sacred to me, it isn't to them. So how do we deal with, with that fact? You know, do we, do we keep insisting on its centrality? Yes. But, but, but how do we transmit that? You know, is the, is what can be learned from that? less important than, you know, the sort of momentary violation of a, of a place that is supposed to be somber. You know, it's just in the nature of people that the kind of like tendrils of, you know, momentary joy and optimism and childhood and blitheness and stupidity and like, you know, all the other things that make us human. They grow over these, these, these memories and, and even these sort of like ossified understandings of what something, what something was to, to say that's good or bad. is kind of to missing the point. It's like, if we want to remember it, then what that's telling us is that it's not just enough to kind of like put it in a box or put it in stone and say, okay, remember. And in, and and in Jewish tradition, you know, it's those things get rehearsed. And when I was talking to a rabbi um, about, about the, the idea of the COVID memorial. And he, you know, he pointed out the Holocaust is something that has been folded into uh, Jewish liturgy. And, you know, in the past couple of generations, in the way we, we remember, and uh, the experience of COVID probably will too. That means that the liturgy itself, the, the sort of live experience, the words change, um, and they change along with experience
0: that's fair enough but it just it does take me back to the the first part of the question which i guess can be rephrased as who does the memorial set out to serve if the designers of the berlin um holocaust memorial were supposed to answer to you know the victims directly would they have been happy with having such an an abstract uh, exhibition that that opens itself up for more interpretation and and thereby for uh, people taking their selfies freely as opposed to something more traditional something that is now out of vogue like i said something much more visually literal
2: i think the question is not so much like who it's supposed to serve obviously it's not supposed to serve the particular tastes and predilections of the designers the designers are there to do something that serves serves a purpose and hopefully you know these these designs are chosen through competition often and and there's some kind of committee that that chooses them, and they're different stakeholders, and sometimes that process becomes very political. For instance, and the uh, the Eisenhower Memorial that Frank Gehry designed in Washington, you know, became very contested because, you know, it it really came to came down to a question of like, how do you remember who Eisenhower was, and his family, you know, was deeply involved in that decision. But you know, ultimately, a, a memorial has to do a lot of different things, and and I think that it's important in order to do a lot of different things and to serve a lot of different constituencies. There has to be some level of of abstraction because it has to be able to it has to be able to reflect some ambiguities. Um, because I think that the less it reflects ambiguities, the more it's about like one idea of one interpretation that is narrow and is assertive, the easier it is to ignore. Right. You know, I see statues that are like, you know, the pride of, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the pride of Poland and, you know, in Central Park, there's the, uh, the, the, the the Polish King with the cross swords.
1: Misha took me to that statue. um...
2: (laughs) I, I, I pass that statue, like, you know, often, um, once every couple of weeks.
1: I had no idea it was there. A friend had to lead me to the hand. It's an amazing,
2: it's an amazing statue. But like, if you ask me what it's actually commemorating, right? You know, I don't know.
0: But on the other hand, you are already just for a your description. You're okay. You see this, this what is it? A king or this character with the swords? You already start asking questions about the story. Whereas when you see an abstract shape, I feel like I wouldn't. It doesn't prompt to the average observer. Certainly not to me. A, a question of I wonder what this granite slab stands for?
2: I don't think that's a question of whether or not it's a granite slab. I think that what matters is the whole context, Mm. the scale, how it's executed, how well it's maintained, what's around it. Uh, You know, in Berlin, there is this kind of like slope. So so like in the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, you go down into it. Uh, No matter what is going on, there are always places to find a kind of serenity and to get away from the city that's like bustling all around. Um, so if you go there in a spirit of reverence there, you you have the opportunity to, to reinforce that. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not holding up the Berlin uh, Holocaust Memorial as the ultimate, you know, or or really defending the design specifically, but I think that it it does, you know, is it sort of a field of ghosts? Is it a field of tombstones? is it you know is it the sort of slabs that that's that a uh, society would really like to to turn horizontal and and cover over that memory uh, is it sort of the refusal to do that it, it, because it's this big area and the absolute center of berlin it it does have that void quality and i think also i mean you know in Berlin, specifically now, it's in dialogue with Danielle Libuskin's uh, Jewish Museum in Berlin, which is also really um, effectively a memorial of a very different kind.
1: It's interesting because we—it's funny—we just had a conversation with a for our, for the podcast with a, with a friend of ours, and we had a whole conversation about uh, you know trauma and what it what it means on an individual level to overcome trauma. And it seems to me that the memorial is kind of like society's answer to wh- how do we deal with traumatic events. And, and all, uh, much like we talked about in our previous conversation, the you know, story has so much of a impact on how we understand those traumatic events. And so I don't know, I think it's interesting. I think there's an interesting tension between these kind of temporary interventions that will help us deal in the moment and can be hyper local and attuned to the, the, the local context in need versus the the idea of the grander statement that maybe happens on a more kind of global level. And that kind of solidifies that story. Was that also kind of what you were thinking about when you were thinking about um, asking these designers to, to create these temporary works versus to create the end all be all memorial?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I have my doubts as to whether there can be a successful, you know, um, permanent sort of global like distillation of all of these, Tensions. You know, maybe those temporary memorials will, you know, give rise to kind of a whole scattering of, of smaller memorials that will, that will be all of the above collectively, um, that will reflect the, the diversity of our experiences. But I, I wanted to actually point out that the discussions we're having about a memorial are really applicable to, to urban interventions and to architecture in general. And that it's a very useful conversation to have because if you turn it back to just, you know, what it means to build a building, whether it's an apartment building or, you know, a a school or whatever, all of the things that we're talking about are still there. And so the memorial kind of distills that idea of meaning, which is often left out of, you know, when, when a developer puts up an apartment building, you know, they have to meet, their investors' needs. They have the math to do. They have to meet the zoning requirements, the building code. You know, there's all the things that they're thinking about. The last thing on their mind is like how people are going to be thinking about it a generation or two from now, right? That's like, you know, the the time horizon is the 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 um, the duration of the loan. Right. If it's a 30 year mortgage, that's basically like all you're really thinking about. You want to make sure that whatever you're investing now will pay off over that time horizon, after which most of the time, you know, that's somebody else's problem. But I think that the idea of approaching cities and everything that happens in a city as this dialogue between the immediate needs, the temporary intervention, like these temporary memorials or alike. For instance, the kind of closed street or the outdoor restaurant enclosures, all the things that happen to make the city livable and to deal with whatever the immediate situation is. The dialogue between that and this long-term idea of what we think a city should be and how it should evolve and for whom, right? The same question you're asking about what what constituency does a memorial serve is something we should be asking about everything in the city, right? What constituency does it serve? So if you put up an apartment building, are you doing something that is going to perpetuate the inequities we've seen so clearly identified? Um, or is it going to help address them? Is it going to shift the character of the neighborhood that it's in in positive or negative ways? Is it going to foreclose other kinds of uses of that space? Is it what we need now? And is it, you know, what does it portend for, for the future? And, and all of those things I think are really important ways, we have to find a way to deal with ambiguity and ambivalence in urban design, as well as, you know, in in, in memorials. For instance, let's just take one example, shopping. You would think that a discussion about memorials, a memorial, discussion about shopping would be like really in completely different universes. But I would say, you know, the way of approaching it is actually kind of similar, because How we shop now, like how we shopped before the pandemic, how we shopped during the pandemic, how we think we're going to want to shop next year, how we want to be able to shop three years from now, and what shopping is even going to mean, those things are are not just predilections. Those are embedded in... For instance, the zoning regulations that we have, right? We have rules that determine there's a building going up, an apartment building going up across the street from where I live. Now I know because what this is what the zoning says that it's going to have it's a corner lot that used to be a bank and a supermarket. The building was taken down, a new building is going in. And I know that they're putting in, you know, a fair amount of ground floor retail. I could even sort of predict exactly how many square feet because that's what the zoning says, and that's what the conventions are. Now. Are we, in fact, going to need that? What does that do to small businesses? Is that going to raise or, de- or uh, raise rents because it's going to be a desirable location? And so it's going to attract national businesses. Is it going to lower rents because it's adding to a glut of unused uh, retail space? How What's the relationship between the people who live in the buildings above and you know the stores that they can go down to? What does that do to street life? What does that do to commuting? all of those things are you know you you just have to be able to think simultaneously about today tomorrow and the distant future at the same time and try to triangulate between them knowing that you don't have a crystal ball
0: unwillingly you've just trotted into not only the the our our next topic but also i think what the specific issue in our next topic that i feel perhaps more strongly about than maybe anything that we've talked about in this podcast <laughs> And that is the issue ever I possibly yes i, I <laughs> so the, we we wanted to uh, uh, take you to this point to to do some rapid fire questions about cities, maybe in general, but perhaps more specifically about New York because we are urban narcissists <laughs> in that field, the issue of street level retail is something that i am I am obsessed with every time I have a friend visit me, whether from a different neighborhood or another town I would take them by the hand to point at every single shop that went out of business and remained closed for years, or force them to count just how many Dwayne Reeds they can count on a 100-mile stretch. So, I, Vanessa, you might want to form it into a question, because I'm, I'm, I can only fulminate when it comes to <laughs> New York retail.
1: Well, the or, uh, idea, if you if you have time for this, just we'd love to just do this a little bit of a fire fire round where we like throw different urbanistic challenges your way and get your okay. your take on them and, and I'll do my best. And if, like w- what's gone wrong and can we fix it kind of a thing. So let's start. Let's start it with. Uh, yeah. Ground floor retail. What what's <laughs> how do we fix that?
2: That's going to be a huge challenge. I mean, what I would like to see happen is for...
0: And explain the problem to somebody who's not as obsessed about this as I am.
2: Right, right. Well, I think there are multiple problems. One is that there has been a consolidation of retail. And so um, large retail chains in over the past like 25 years have outcompeted small businesses. Um, and one of the ways... They do that as simply by paying more rent, but also lowering prices and having, um, you know, more volume. And of course, when online retailing came along, and you know, Amazon in particular, that then did the same thing with the national chains, put the same kinds of pressure on those. So you have this kind of like chain reaction where, so it's uh, literally, chain reaction. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> where, you know, the, these national retailers are putting pressure on mom and pop retailers, and then Amazon's putting pressure on them. That's meant, for instance, that um, what used to be a lot of small spaces has gotten, have gotten consolidated into large spaces. And so a block, I live on the Upper West Side, a block of Broadway on the Upper West Side that once had, you know, 12 to 15 small businesses on it, now it has two. And so when that when one of those two businesses closes, that means half the block, what used to be seven or eight businesses is now vacant. And that means there's less to see, there's less to do, there's less reason to go there. There's just less of a sense of vibrancy.
0: And the remaining businesses are usually only one of the same set of five chains that you will probably see anywhere. And it's my pet peeve to anybody who doesn't walk in New York. It's a game you can play. There is just a List of maybe 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 eight chains that the moment you see the first one of them you're bound to see the next in quick succession. If you see a Chase Bank, you're going to see the, the your Starbucks and your uh, Pret A Manger and your Dwayne Reed and your CVS almost immediately after because they you, you just come in like a
2: pack. Well, set. yeah, I mean, I think the good news about that is that almost that so many of those. Um, large businesses are struggling and closing stores. So, you know, you've got your revenge. I mean, there are fewer (laughs) Starbucks, there are fewer Dwayne Reeds. They consolidated a lot of um, uh, pharmacies. In fact, at one point, a pharmacist told me a few years ago that there were so many that, you know, the the big pharmacy chains, Dwayne Reed and Walgreens and CVS were snapping up so many pharmacy school graduates that that was a real pipeline for immigrants, especially. Um, That was a a jobs pipeline. And there were people being trained, and there was this demand. And then they started downsizing. And all of a sudden, there were people who had the qualifications and had nowhere to go. So, what did they do? They started to find small storefronts, um, mostly in, in Queens and the Bronx, and opened up small pharmacies of the kinds that CVS and Dwayne Reed had displaced. Huh. So there was something of a renaissance in small, wow. you know, uh, individually owned pharmacies. Now, my hope would be that the same thing would happen to lots of different kinds of retail. You know, I think that this year of ordering so much online or not shopping at all or being hesitant to go into stores will have a kind of uh, reaction. Um, afterwards, in which that kind of, you know, physical experience is something that we really crave again. I think something like that appears to have happened in a couple of streets in Brooklyn, where, for instance, Soho retailers that found that they, you know, once the tourists were gone, had to close up shop, then reopened smaller stores in where they lived. Maybe it was Cobble Hill, maybe it was uh, Fort Greene, you know, areas in, in Brooklyn that, that had, smaller stores and had some availability. And I I would hope maybe that to some extent that that can happen some more. But I think in general, we need to think about that ground floor retail in much broader ways. You know, I think restaurants will come back. There's an insatiable demand for those. Restaurants are always opening and closing. And I think that that will add some vibrancy. But I also think we need to think about many different ways of using that retail space. If it is less of an economic driver, in other words, if on commercial corridors, landlords can not figure that in as prominently as they once could into the economics of operating and especially of constructing new buildings. Then you actually open up a whole different kind of ecosystem because I think that was part of what was squeezing everything. It was that the the when you put up a new building, right? You have to do all the financials, and part of that financials is what you expect the revenue stream to be from the retail. If that revenue stream dries up, and if basically the amount you can count on is zero, well, that opens up a lot of possibilities. So you could have, you know. Um, nonprofit offices, uh you could have um community organizations, you can have um artist spaces, um, you can have, you know, of course, a lot more um more fragile sorts of businesses um that 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 um don't no longer need to compete with the big chains. Um it some of that will have to be regulatory, right? We have to make it easier for different kinds of stores and businesses and organizations to occupy those spaces. Um, But I think that that's actually going to be an exciting urbanist challenge over the next number of years is to figure out like, okay, in the same way that um, at once upon a time, we no longer needed to have a uh, saddler next to a uh, rope maker next to a, uh, a, a, uh, barrel maker, you know, all of those businesses disappeared. Right. Oh, exactly. Shartner. You know, <laughs> we can sort of find a way to negotiate that shift. That's something New York is actually very good at negotiating big social shifts and reusing space. But I think part of that m- means Dividing up those spaces into smaller units, and changing the economic basis—creative
0: destruction. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one at you, and then I'll let you choose your last one, Justin. Since in the uh, conscious of time here, but um, accessibility. This is one for me that I just makes me. That's the thing that makes me really angry. The extent to which we have been seemingly unable or unwilling to make this city more accessible from subway stations to sidewalks. You've written a lot about the fact that, you know, our garbage collection is a huge accessibility issue because, you know, it's smelly and horrible for us to walk by. But when you're in a wheelchair, you can't even that means you, you might not be able to get to work or home or whatever. Um, so uh, how do you think about this challenge for New York? And is is there a way to uh, approach it more <laughs> more systematically
2: yes i think that is absolutely that is actually a soluble problem um if you if you think about it the right way the hardest part of it and the part that gets the most attention is how do you make subway stations accessible it's incredibly expensive they're underground they were not they were built in a previous era you know every elevator costs tens of millions of dollars there isn't the space in many stations um you know and the it takes a long time. I mean, I think that that is improving. The MTA recently hired a new chief accessibility officer, who's somebody who seems to have a lot of the right ideas, but, you know, he is definitely focused. uh, His name is Kimwell Arroyo, and he's definitely focused on some of the other things that can happen around this sort of central thorny issue of how do you make the stations accessible. So let's set that aside for a minute. That's important and it's tough And it is gradually happening, but, you know, that's the hardest piece of it. On the other hand, there are so many aspects of the city, of the way the city functions that make it impossible to navigate for people with disabilities of different kinds that can be solved, right? I am constantly furious at how difficult it is to get down the street, especially on days when garbage is piled on the sidewalk. There's a really simple solution to that. Don't pile garbage on the sidewalk. Pile it in the street or have containers occupy what are currently parking spots or delivery zones that the garbage go into. The reason I know that's feasible is because-
0: Containers? Like, like every other city in the world? Every
2: <laughs> other city in the world. You know, backwards approach to say like, oh, I don't know, how are we supposed to solve that one? Who knows? You know, I think that part of what needs to happen to the, in the problem solving is simply to look at what other cities have done. And we have a very parochial approach to problem solving, which is to reinvent the wheel every time. But Mm. actually, I think this is a moment where a lot of those things can be addressed simultaneously because one of the things that's happened is that the wisdom on how you deal with and design New York streets has shifted dramatically in recent years. And part of that is due to the pandemic. So if you look at the current mayoral candidates, they are all trying to outdo each other in expressing Hmm. how many bike lanes they're going to build and how to manage curbside delivery for, you know, Amazon and the like, and how many parking spaces they're going to remove and how they're going to create space for electric vehicles and so on. Many of them are well, some of them are knowledgeable about, for instance, the sort of current standards in, in, in street design and, and the sort of best practices, which basically means reshaping how street space and curb space is allocated and designed. And when you do that, you can make it more accessible because that can be, and in fact, mm-hmm. absolutely should be a high priority. And it, You know, it's one of those things where you're dealing in sort of almost two dimensions. I mean, the problem with accessibility of streets is that it's it's that three dimensional jump from the curb to the to the pavement. But it's because the whole surface of the street is basically takes place in you know sort of an eighteen inch depth. It can be dealt with. Streets are incredibly complicated, right? They're deep. They're far deeper than that because they carry all of these conduits underneath them, and so like. Um, you know everything about them is is complex, but it's one of those things where the transportation needs, the commercial needs, the accessibility needs, and the sustainability needs actually all align. And if you redesign the streets and you make that a high priority, we can improve on all of those levels simultaneously. There's no real trade off that's necessary.
1: I love that. Um, and then if you have time for one more, I mean, I would let you choose, yep. choose your adventure here. Uh, we were, we were going to ask you either zoning, development, housing, but is as, as there a pet, either one of those or, or one that you just like to rant about or <laughs> rave about?
0: NIMBYism, always an option.
2: <laughs> okay, let's, let's talk about housing a little bit. The thing is that all of those topics that you gave me are inextricable from each other and i think it's really important to see them that mm-hmm. way yeah. because we have a city full of you know housing experts housing policy people politicians who focus on housing housing plans housing advocates and so on but you really can't separate for that from say the streets little lecture i just gave or from transportation and of course from social justice issues the overall goal that we should have in mind now for sort of the next phase in urban development is how we become a simultaneously a more prosperous city and also a fairer city. And housing, of course, is a big part of that. We, it's a hugely complicated issue, but I think one that, again, there are models to solve. And one of the things I think we need to do is to stop thinking of housing quality and quantity as sort of, you know, uh, two different, two, two opposing forces. Europe has a lot of lessons for us in this regard. And and some of it, you can make better, cheaper housing by adopting technologies that are illegal here. Um, So, for instance, buildings that are not high-rise buildings that are maybe only five or six stories, but they um, have different requirements about sort of fire egress and the number of stairs. That seems like a small technical thing, but it makes the difference between the, the plausibility of building relatively low-rise buildings as opposed to the towers. You know, in New York, once you go above five stories, then it's more economical to build 20 because you have to have the elevator core and like all of the things that are really expensive. So you try to recoup that by going higher. So there's this constant pressure from developers to be able to like maximize the height of buildings. And then there's constant resistance to that because the one thing people can agree on is that they dislike height. They want lots of housing, but they don't want tall buildings. Right. Again, that is something that you could actually theoretically resolve because the goal here is to make construction cheaper by A, paying fewer lawyers, uh, so speeding up the process, judiciously relaxing certain regulations, for instance, It would be nice if we could build with uh, mass timber, cross laminated timber like that is a pretty well proven technology. It's not a panacea, but it's something that is available and sustainable. We should be able to do that in New York. There's a whole raft of regulations and procedures that create also this kind of adversarial system where anything that isn't doesn't sort of automatically fall into the rules that requires any kind of public approvals process gets delayed forever. And so it becomes more expensive uh, as that happens. So you could actually, by changing, by having a kind of smart approach to rules, both in zoning and in the building code, you could open up some, um, you could make housing cheaper, you could build it faster, and, it could, and the end result is you would have more of it and it would be a better quality. Because I think one of the things that needs to happen, for instance, is that you need to be able to build somewhat higher all over the city. You know, we think of this as a, as a city where everything is really tall, but that's really only true in Manhattan and in downtown Brooklyn and a couple of other places. But, you know, vast areas of Queens and Brooklyn, you can't build more than a single family house. So if you liberalized it even just to the areas where you can only build um, single family houses, you could now build, say, four and five story apartment buildings. And you sort of had these rules so that they were actually of high architectural quality and people actually liked them and stopped protesting against them. You know, you could add a lot of housing to the city. Right. So all of these things are, are, are interconnected. And I think it's important to have people in the, in the city who understand those, those interconnections because it's just too easy to isolate one thing and just think about it in, in those terms where you have housing for instance really affects how the subway system works if if everybody is commuting in the same direction at the same time every day and then back again at the end of the day that creates pressures on the transit system that are enormous that you could alleviate by shifting the housing around so that the commuting patterns were different and you had the transit system balanced
0: so 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 simple so simple yes no question um, good, uh, uh,
2: rent control good or bad <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> you're asking for yes or no answers. <laughs> You've come to the wrong place. I'm <laughs> sure you figured it out it exists. It's a part of the way this the city works. You can't get can't get rid of it. the The question is like the question is really should you extend you know rent regulation? Um, uh, and I think we need rent regulation. Yes.
1: Ooh, put you in the hot spot in the hot seat there, uh, mayoral <laughs> yeah. candidate. Any any that rise to the top?
2: Unfortunately, no. Oh no. <laughs> I I I wish there were. I am deeply worried about this. Really? Really?
0: Of all the sev- seventy four candidates running right now, you're in, no one.
2: <laughs> well, they all have you know they all have their strengths, um, but I am to me there are basically. A few. I'm less interested in what their policies are on housing or whatever than I am on their skills, hmm. because I think we really need a, a very defined skill set. And I would say that the, the, my priorities for a, a mayor are somebody who can understand the complexities and the inter, uh, interplay of different agencies and actually manage those different agencies so that they're not retreating to their own um, silos and having just turf battles so that nothing gets done so that's one it's a managerial skill a second is a political skill which is to develop a relationship with albany and that means the legislature as well as the governor because they hold the power for a lot of things and you have to you just can't you know have this sort of stalemate now
0: if only we could get more people as skilled as de blasio at that (laughs)
2: look i mean i don't put all of the blame for the relationship between the city and the state on de blasio cuomo certainly uh you know does not make it easy and We'll see what Cuomo's future is. But I think that, on the part of the mayor, somebody who is politically skilled at, at dealing with that relationship, understands what it means. I think that's important. And the third is I think it is really important for the mayor to be able to exercise civilian control over the police hmm. um, because really nothing can get done in the city if the police are, are setting the agenda. And that's not just about how the police um, treat protests, for instance, or how they police um, Black neighborhoods. Those things are hugely important and, you know, are absolutely central to, to the way the police operate and how the city operates. But, you know, for instance, just like on a smaller scale, but if you want to go back to some of the things I was talking about, about how the streets operate, you know if you want to have a network of bike lanes and busways to make the the city operate more smoothly you need cooperation from the police you need them to enforce the rules and you also need them not to park in the bike lanes yeah you know, or the bus lanes yeah you know, that's kind of key <laughs> and so anything you do if you don't have the cooperation of the police
0: and you don't recognize anybody what's the biggest deficit in in, in terms of these three criteria in, in, among the current crop of candidates?
2: Well, I think some of them are unproven that way. I feel like there's a lot of competition for who can be most progressive, which is fine. but you know, I think when it when it sort of bumps up against reality, what we want to know is is what they can actually accomplish, um, not just you know what they would like to accomplish. You know, somebody like Scott Stringer is an experienced He's experienced in city politics, but along with that inherits, you know, a whole kind of lifetime of compromise uh, and business as usual, I guess. I mean, I, I would hope that if he were elected mayor, he could get past that and, and use his knowledge to sort of get beyond that. Who knows? Then you have somebody like Sean Donovan, who is a, uh, an experienced uh, manager who knows a lot about housing, um, but he's not a politician. You know, he's never run for office. Andrew Yang, you know, maybe a charismatic leader. Does he really understand how the city's bureaucracies work and how all of the, well, like what all the rules are, indications are not really, he's got a lot of good, well, he's got a lot of ideas, how many of them are good or, you know, uh, when I hear an idea that feels on the face of it implausible, for instance, taking over city control of the MTA, getting that back from the state, you know... My first reaction is, well, that's never going to happen. And it's a terrible idea. And it's like, you know, he should just move on. But maybe I'm guilty of the same kind of thinking that like, you know, he's being more creative and maybe he can sort of figure out how that would actually work. Uh, hard to maybe we were just being fatalistic.
0: Maybe, D- Justin, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for being so yeah, generous with
1: your thank time. Thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, sure. this is wonderful. Pleasure. Thank you.
2: you. You gave me a... a an opening to just kind of ramble on. (laughs) Well, that's the the point of this one. (laughs) I like to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I'm writing, it's like I have to kind of narrow each thing into a little, into a little box so that it actually makes sense. But my cumulatively, my sense of, uh, because I'm changing topics so much from week to week or from day to day, cumulatively, my, my sense of the interconnectedness of all these things just keeps intensifying right um you know that, that like i can't write without one about one thing without sort of also referring to another because the city is this incredibly complex organism and you know you right. have to be able to solve a problem by isolating it but you also can't solve it by isolating right that
0: we met in the context of of culture journalism and i just wonder what do you see your role in that like what do you see your job as a culture journalists both in music and in architecture in this in this case
2: um i think my role is to help readers and by readers i mean really literally anybody who reads how invested they are and and be in what is otherwise a set of kind of arcane processes that they might feel disconnected from my goal is to try to break it down in a way that not only they can understand it, but they also feel emotionally invested in. Because as a writer, I don't want to just explain in a dry technical way. I want to also like create a narrative that will engage readers so that they feel like, oh, this is about me. Now, this is about my life. This is like, if I think about this, even for five minutes, I can actually have an impact on all the things that I complain about. Right. I walk down the street and I'm fuming because there's like, you know, not only first there was a Dwayne Reed and now it's closed and that's worse. And I'm just mad. Yeah, okay. But like if you understand, if I can help you sort of take you along and help you understand what some of those dynamics are and what you can what you could even do about them, but how related they are to other things, then I just help maybe inch you towards being a better, more informed, more participatory. Citizen. But on the other side, I can help put pressure on decision makers and also on architects to keep all those things in mind. Right. If if I can if I can say to an architect, sure, you're thinking this way, but everybody around you is thinking this way. And it's a bigger, broader picture, made up of lots of little sort of points of of view and Iotas of experience, then I think I've performed a a service there because I think that I can help, you know, remind decision makers and 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 architects and 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 planners there that they're part of the city. So it kind of goes both ways. It's explaining, it's mediating, it's explaining what they do and why they do it to readers, and it's also sort of like helping those people understand what what some reactions might be and what those Meanings are. I think people get caught up in the technicalities and the, in the specifics and the, you know, narrow uh, points of view. And sometimes it helps just to have somebody who is not invested, or who's not, who may be invested, but who isn't like a, doesn't have a team, you know, who's kind of like, not, who's got a different vocabulary to come along and say, you know, okay, but, you know, have you thought about it this way?
0: Vanessa, do you want to show him your Justin Davidson tattoo? <laughs> ah! <laughs> <laughs> She's a groupie.
1: No, but I have been a fa- fan for quite some time, so I do appreciate you you coming on.
0: Thank you so much and thank you for letting us perlorn your time. Well thank you. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substaff.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the social media, and you should come and visit. If you're feeling generous, please give us a five-star review and rating on Apple
2: Podcasts. And friends and enemies. Until next time, stay safe.